Hello and welcome to Shoot the Piano Player, a French New Wave podcast. I'm your host Spencer and with me is a, uh, well he told me he's just going on a business trip and he didn't take me with him. So I I assume he's with another podcaster, but I, but I can't prove it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I would never do that. I was. It was just a. It was just a different thing. Shh. Quiet. Quiet. Other podcaster. I, I was trying to think of a podcaster that would be hanging out with me. Uh. Is it Josh Hollis? Josh Hollis. Yeah. That's that's about it. It's like somebody. It's <laughs> Phil Gonzalez from the Berenstain Bearcast. Oh, I've met. Called? Yes. Oh, deep in Bear Country. Yeah. There you go. I, I've met Phil in person. He's very nice. But he's oh, also... Like, yeah, I mean, he seems nice. Yeah, he's also super shy. But super nice. Super shy? Uh, what do you yeah. mean? He, he doesn't do this in the two sides of the face kiss when you first meet? I'll change that. <laughs> nah, but... Uh, uh, Phil, hey, we're not here to talk about Phil Gonzalez and a super successful podcast. We're here to talk about mm. our show that's not as successful as his. But, um... Uh-huh. Yeah, he, 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 he interviewed, like, Mike Bernstein... Or the Sun, who runs it now, which is kind yeah. Of, yeah. Um, anyway, listen to uh, Deep in Bear Country. It's a really good show for all ages. Um. Anyway, this is the 1964 pairing, the first of a couple. Um, for starting off with the Soft Skin, a uh, Francois Truffaut movie. I've seen a couple Truffaut, and when I was looking at movies, I was like, well, this is one I haven't seen yet, so might as well put it on the list. And repairing it with the first of several Bava movies because I will find an excuse to talk about Bava. And uh, that will be Blood and Black Lace uh, next episode. And uh, yeah, so will there be crossover between the two? I, I don't think so. But uh, yeah, so it was a soft skin. Um, but uh, we have a special guest, the first of a couple appearances, Dave Eaves from. Um, several different podcasts that you if you're listening from, to this, from the internet yeah from the internet <laughs> I, I think you could say that i'm just from uh, the ethos of of where podcasts may lay of, of the film variety hello yeah uh, always the the guest never the host exactly are you gonna get your own like rom-com like 27 dresses one of these days. One of these days. Until then, I, I'm perfectly happy being like a 1970s game show TV personality where I just appear wherever I want to be. I'll, I'll be the Charles Nelson Riley of uh, <laughs> film podcasts. I was going to say um, no, the other gay one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no. uh, the guy from Bye Bye Birdie. Is it Bye Bye Birdie? Uh, um, Paul Lind. There we go. Okay, Paul Lind. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that too. Yeah, <laughs> otherwise known as the other gay one. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, whatever. This is this is starting off messy. <laughs> you, but sound, you sound like a casting agent from that time period. <laughs> Get me the other gay one. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. So, uh, um, uh, uh, Dave, when I sent you the list, what made you pick this movie? This is one of Truffaut's films. It's one that is not talked about as much, but really kind of blew me away the first time I saw it. And I had been looking for an excuse to revisit it, and it seemed like a very interesting one to speak about as well. I'll, I'll keep some of my thoughts 
back for the time being, let us really get into it within the podcast itself. But it was one, I mean, it's a nearly two hour movie, but I feel like when you watch it, you're engaged the entire time. It's also the first film that Truffaut had made uh, after his infamous interview, I don't want to say infamous, his famous interview with Alfred Hitchcock that spurred the book Hitchcock Truffaut. And I think within this, you can really see his filmmaking style kind of pivot in a new direction. You can see a lot of that Hitchcockian influence, despite the fact that it's rather domestic. It's, I don't want to say mundane, but it's not something that maybe an Alfred Hitchcock would make. There's no situations like that in there, but it certainly maintains that Hitchcock suspense throughout. Yeah. Like this feels like if Hitchcock made like a, a romance film, but in like, but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's off to say with that thought. Uh, J dog, had you seen this movie before? Negative. Nope. Only true foe I'd seen was 400 blows. I believe. Was that in your film class? No, that was uh, just Adventures and Adventures and Criterion on Hulu back in the day. You know, when I was just first getting into that stuff, I was like, 400 blows. I like the number 400. <laughs> it was it really was something like that. It wasn't it wasn't like, "Oh, I thought this would be interesting." And uh, I have to say with that movie back in the day, I was like, "I don't get it." <laughs> so uh I, he didn't I, get I, hit I, once where's the 400 blows yeah exactly yeah um but it it did uh strike me as different at least like uh, that's that's another thing that kept me coming back for all this french stuff is that it was different than what hollywood was pushing out so uh, same thing with this one like except i feel like 400 blows had an aspect of life that i would have not known anything about otherwise where this one is a pretty stripped down simple story of like a mediocre man (laughs) making decisions (laughs) that had uh have a wonderful way to end but yeah Hmm. all right but uh uh dave what was your uh introduction to french new wave if you can even like remember I would say that's probably way back when I was in film school. The first French New Wave film that I saw was Masculine Feminine from Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, And it was just so wildly different, so wildly weird and fascinating uh, versus other things that I had seen that I was instantly kind of hooked. I think prior to that French New Wave, it, it had this almost like pretentious feel in my mind that I was so absolutely wrong about. And from then, I've obviously expanded beyond there. I, I watched at least one film from every filmmaker involved within the movement itself. Uh, Godard, at least from the 60s, is probably one of my favorites. Truffaut is also fantastic and has some of my favorite films from that movement itself. And I, I, I mean, I'm hoping that people that are listening to this have either experienced this or are using this season of your podcast as a way and an introduction into some of the great films of the movement itself. Yeah, this is kind of an excuse for me to, one, fill in the blank spots, and two, uh, try to figure out, uh, why don't I get Godard? And <laughs> and we've gotten one down out of, like, five, and I still don't quite get it. <laughs> the, one, the, the crazy thing about so many of these films, especially from the, the proper French New Wave guys, the people that were at Cahiers du Cinema, like Truffaut, like Godard, like Romare, like Rivette, uh, or Chabrol, 
is that they have this great expansive knowledge of both film history and this great expansive knowledge of literature. And I feel like in order to really fully, truly understand these films, you need to have read everything that they've read and seen everything that they've seen, which is not not too feasible. I'm sure lots of people have done both. But uh, for a lot of the films in the 60s, you don't need that to at least get the entry point in. I think that's more so the case for Truffaut. Even if you don't know that history, don't know that literature, you're still going to get a nice, fun, engaging story. With Godard, you get something of an engaging story, and it probably becomes richer the more you get the references he's making. Whereas further on his career, he's just like, I don't care about being entertaining anymore. I just want to be esoteric and just have the in people that know what I know get this. Whereas Truffaut, I feel like, becomes more and more relatable, more and more... uh, I don't want to say marketable, but more and more appealing to the average person, whereas Godard goes off in the other direction. Hmm. And then they have a, a historic fallout when uh, Truffaut made Day for Night. But that's obviously a story for a different podcast, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Actually, that's not, on the, that's not on the schedule, but we probably should cover Day for Night. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, well, first, this is my third Truffaut. I've seen Shoot a Piano Player. Which so far is my favorite French New Wave film. I've uh yeah yeah I'd say it's my favorite uh, of the ones I've seen so far, and I've seen um uh, the Bride Wore Black, which we're gonna uh, which which has come out pretty soon actually, and um and what uh what you felt like it's always fun going to a new one because I never I'm never quite sure what I'm gonna get. It's it, he he really plays in a lot of different fields. And seems to have a lot of different interests, and is and is willing to experiment and be like, I want to try diff- this genre and, and like this type of tone, and like he seems to uh, be more. I, I don't know where I'm going with this. He's he's a little bit more versatile, I'd say. Yeah, and um, and like you were saying earlier, but like no one talks about the soft skin. Uh, I never heard of it until I looked up the list of like movies to pick for for the for the season. Is this like? Oh well, that uh, it's like oh, never heard of that one. Might as well put it on the list. So, <laughs> but watch. Well, it was it was booed at Cannes, uh, which which I think is surprising. But I kind of guess I get it coming off of Four Hundred Blows, Shoot the Piano Player, and Jules and Jim. Um, <laughs> I think they were all expecting something. I, I I think they they didn't get it then. I and I know that people have come around to the film in more recent years and which I'm happy about because this one like like I said before this one it really took me by surprise I don't think I expected much when I saw it because it did not have that same reputation behind it as something like the 400 blows where you expect like oh it's going to be this great masterpiece of filmmaking and you watch it and maybe it's not quite what you expect it's still a great film but I think it's very easy for something like that when it has this monumental reputation about it to maybe be a little bit disappointed at first and have it grow in your mind. Whereas this, since it didn't have as much of a reputation, really surprised me and shocked me. I think uh, you saying that about like the masterpiece of film thing, I think that's, yeah, I'm, I'm barely starting to get that that is not the right way to almost walk into any movie. Like, sure, uh, if you're sitting down to watch Citizen Kane for the first time and you, and I feel like having a little bit of film knowledge is helpful, you may sit down and be like, wow, I can't, you know, this is actually a masterpiece. But I, I do think that walking in expecting a masterpiece is usually a, a bad way to go about it now. Yeah. And that's, 
that is definitely one of the problems I've run into when watching just some of the stuff at Criterion because like uh, it's on you know <laughs> I, I, I this is another thing I've recently changed my view on which is like not everything they put on Criterion is like ooh I can't believe it you know it, it is <laughs> unique for one reason or another mm-hmm. but uh, yeah I think especially watch, walking in the French New Wave stuff uh it's like if you're expecting a masterpiece, you're probably going to be disappointed. But there is enough like I haven't seen before, or this was super creative, or I this tone really worked for me, kind of things that make these movies unique. Mm-hmm. And, so, and it's it's funny that you yeah. mentioned Citizen Kane because my wife literally had the exact opposite reaction. It was on TV, and she's like, oh. This is going to be terrible. It's supposed to be the best movie ever. It's going to be pretentious. And because she kind of went in expecting something that she wouldn't like, she ended up loving it. So yeah, a preconceived notion can really disrupt your enjoyment of a film. Yeah. And even when I went to rewatch this, because I hadn't seen it since... The the first time I saw it was when it first came out on Blu-ray. I'm sure the disc... Oh, it's going to... Oh my goodness, first printing 2015. So this is the first time I've watched it in five years. And watching it again, I was almost like, why did I like this so much? This guy's an asshole. (laughs) And then as the movie goes on, I was like, oh, that's the point. Pretty plain. Yeah, it... it, Especially compared to so many other French New Wave protagonists, which are like cool, young, maybe trapped in a bit of adolescence that are kind of obsessed with like film noir and think they're the nice, cool guy. Whereas this guy is a middle-aged, sad sack, uh, literary writer, publisher, who is, is suddenly getting involved in a French New Wave plot and doesn't really know how to navigate the waters properly. Yeah, um... Yeah, we can get into that. I wonder if this is his first, you know, affair. But I mean, he's really bad at it. <laughs> if it I cannot imagine this but. guy's ever been even like looked at by a stewardess before, let alone been in an affair with one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's semi-famous. And yeah, that's enough for people to be like, ooh, this guy's special. Yeah. And I think it's so funny that for like the 1960s, I, I'm sure if this plot were to play out today, no one would recognize a, 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 a Balzac scholar on, on a plane <laughs> or, or have their picture, like for the newspaper. And I think it's really funny. It's like when they zoom down on the newspaper to his picture with the stewardess, it's like Kennedy assassinated. <laughs> this coup is <laughs> happening in Vietnam. Oh, but the Balzac writer got a picture with the stewardess. I, I don't even think that would make the newspaper at all today. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's my thought there? <laughs> I'm sorry, I derailed the entire podcast. No. Yeah, all right. um, it's, yeah let's start over. One, two. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, the first thing I want to bring up is that the uh, the, the 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 lead, the one or two leads, um, uh, Nicole uh, Francois, uh, something French. My French. Dorliac. Yeah, Dorliac. Uh, my French. Uh, Catherine Deneuve's sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, she and. I watched and it's like she looks familiar, and then I was like, "Oh, that's why I know who she is, because she's the she's the one that uh, died only a couple of years after this." Yeah, uh, at the age of twenty-seven. That's terrible. Yeah, and she was she was famous before Catherine Deneuve was. I can't remember the film that she became a well-known personality, but she 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 was doing it before Catherine Deneuve was. Died at twenty-seven, yeah. and Catherine Deneuve is the one that that kind of continued to, to rise into stardom. Was it cul-de-sac? No, I think she, because that cul-de-sac is what, like sixty-two. I think she was in something in nineteen in the fifties. Hmm. Um, let's see. Yeah, because I know her from cul-de-sac, which 
might be my favorite of uh, the Polanski movies. <clears throat> Let's see. Before Cold Distack. I usually have an IMDb page open with this stuff, and I am clearly behind the times here. Yeah, Cold Distack is after girl, oh, okay. young, young Girls, it looks like. Yeah. So, uh, she was in La Gamberge. Uh, Arsene Lupin versus Arsene Lupin. Oh, let's see. She's in The Wolves, in The the Sheepfold, and The Door Slams, those two movies that I've definitely heard of before. All the Gold in the World, The Man from Rio, yeah, Tonight or Never. These, I mean, these. the problem with looking at just posters of these, they all have excellent posters. Like, our poster game nowadays sucks. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> really... like, why isn't there more artistic interpretations of like just characters or or things like that that's enough you know but now they're all generic dvd covers with pictures of the stars on them yeah that's why we have people like uh, tony stella fighting the good fight thank goodness yeah but anyway, uh, back to, yeah, anyway, also back to the, <laughs> the movie. Sorry, she uh, was, just one more thing. She was also yes. in Om- Genghis Khan, 1965, starring Omar Sharif as a oh. as a Temenjin or oh. Genghis Khan. I mean, not so to be, you know that's good. Well, not to be too much of a of a history nerd, but if you want to be technical, uh, Genghis Khan should be like uh, uh, Central Asian and had red hair because by uh, allegedly he he had red hair and like green eyes. And looks oh, like European and Asian. So, do you think uh, John Wayne did a better job? Uh, no. Than Omar Sharif. <laughs> oh, okay, just checking. <laughs> now, John Wayne's good in some movies, but uh, you know, he he had, he he knows his range, and that was not. Hmm. Uh, I watch Rio well, Bravo. He's great <clears throat> in that. You're beautiful in your anger. That's the that's the best I can do. Sorry. I I I just want to make a terrible joke that he doesn't know his range between nuclear testing sites. I, I shouldn't have said true. that though. That's, that was yeah. That was fine. The the thing is that people had been planning to take him down, and the only way they could was to get him near a nuclear bomb, and you know it worked finally. But yeah. he was a uh, an immortal. And uh, okay, sorry. I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> yeah. So uh, oh, I remember uh, relating back to our vampire podcast. Um, what? Uh, the lead in this movie, Pierre, he reminds me of like mm-hmm. John Harker, where he was kind of lame. But, yes. And it's like it's like what if you have Dracula type story, but there's no Dracula and it's Jonathan Harker the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's a pretty good call. Like it, in the way. And Jonathan Harker talks about him, so you know what he's going on. Like he's a total square, and so he—you would think he would be a schlub, but in the movies we've got him semi-attractive because of he—you know—he's got a fiance that gets involved. Or, you know, I don't even know what happens in the book yet because I haven't finished it. But that's, well, I can that tell is a really good call. Yeah, I can tell you, Harker in the book does not get more interesting. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert: Dracula is a vampire. What? I just thought he was a lizard lizard man who can climb up castle walls. That that's my favorite thing about every Dracula movie when characters refer to Dracula and, and become surprised when they learn that he's a vampire. I mean it makes sense, but it's like, come on. Dracula's been around for two hundred years now. We should all know. Uh, yeah. It's a, the, yeah. But uh anyway, but uh yeah, and so like I starting out this movie, I was like like I, I the first twenty minutes or so, my reaction was like 
god damn this guy's like harker i don't i don't think i'm gonna like this movie <laughs> but then like as it went went along and like just the filmmaking because like you get a lot of these uh close-up shots of hands and like you get a lot of close-up of like he writes down like her phone number on like a on the matchbox thing and like he's trying to like like nonchalantly like putting it in his coat pocket when his wife is right there and so there's stuff like and so it's like so much stuff like that where it's like this is real exciting but it really should but like it somehow is so mundane at the same time well it's, it's the excitement in everyday things and you can clearly tell that prior to um, oh my god, I have the booklet open so that I can actually refer to characters by name. Uh, prior to Pierre meeting Nicole, the most exciting thing that happened in his life was that he might have been late for a plane. <laughs> and like they play that off like it's a spy movie trying to get to the plane before it takes off. It, when they were yes. not going to leave really without the, the, the quote-unquote air quote that I'm doing in the air that you can't see, celebrity. <laughs> uh, and then suddenly he, he gets wrapped up in this world of lies where it's like, oh, if actually get caught doing this there might be some real world consequences yeah i listen this okay so i i know you dave really like the movie spencer i get the sense that you also very much like the movie uh yeah i am i'm just kind of middling on it and one of the problems i had and i understand that that is a key part of the movie not a mistake you know, not not something like what were they thinking? Like we could actually explain what they were thinking was the tone because of the orchestral music thing. Like there's more than <laughs> there's the part in the airport where you know they're rushing and driving like crazy, and it's got this music that's like oh something terrible is going to happen, and nothing does happen. But I get that feeling sometimes when I'm driving really fast, I get that music in my head. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's also another part later where he and the uh, stewardess are driving and it's playing that music and it's it's like wait is is this thing it's like no it's it's he's going for the Hitchcock tone like he is getting away with something and um, it's it's a major problem I have with like m- movies in general that try to sway the feelings of a situation and usually it's way more obvious usually it's like these two are tragically romance let's bring up the strings let's let's fill the room with this rich sad melancholy feeling so that you know we're not going to rely only on the actors and this it's it's almost it's it's you could almost see it as comical because it's like they're just driving somewhere but this music is like oh my god are they going to get away with this affair oh no oh you know i see i think that there was in some intended dark comedy with that i think the music in this film is absolutely beautiful and very reminiscent of something that godard would use and then suddenly cut away from the second you start enjoying it um but uh, we're allowed to like let the music itself resolve in this film and and another thing that I think he learned from Hitchcock, um, I'm, I'm trying to think because I I know I've listened to some of the interviews there, and I, he was filming Marnie. Or no, Marnie came out the same year as this. He had just finished with the birds, but one of the things that Hitchcock likes to do is that he knows that you will still feel suspense if you see someone doing the wrong thing, if maybe they're a little bit attractive. So I think having. Uh, Nicole as a part of this you almost don't want to see her be disappointed and even though you're not on the same page with Pierre as he's going about this you still kind of don't want him to get caught for whatever reason maybe it's because when you're 
typically watching this, he's 20 feet in the air above you in a movie theater, and you want things to go well. You don't want catastrophe. You don't want failure. And I think that that still brings this great deal of suspense, even though I think he is doing the wrong thing. This is a man that clearly is not in an open relationship. He has a five-year-old daughter. He is a schlub. He is jealous of his own mistress, who, who clearly is gall- not maybe having an affair, but has clearly been with this attractive pilot. He goes to the airport, making sure that she's still there. He's not the kind of guy you really want to root for, but when things start to go bad, you still don't want him to get caught. And that's kind of one of the magic pieces of filmmaking itself and the suspense that's within the film. Yeah, like, uh, no, yeah, I agree with everything you just said. I have nothing to add to that. And <laughs> yeah, that's like... It, like, like I thought earlier, like this is less like if Hitchcock, if Hitchcock made like a romance film, where it's like it's it's uh except it's mundane, and but I like that it's this Hitchcock approach to this like very simple, like personal story where instead we're like if it's Hitchcock there there'd be, uh, uh more like more of a more tension and more murder and more just like it'd be closer to, uh like north by northwest or something like there'd be a grander scheme this is just literally a personal drama within this one family that's like treated like 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 the most thrilling thing in the world Hmm. it's yeah because it is the most thrilling thing for him like this is probably the most one of the most thrilling thing that's ever ever happened happened. yeah yeah except for meeting his his super attractive wife which is one of the like wait a minute what's going on it's like i guess i'm just bored like come on man it and it this also feels like the stereotypical like if you've never seen a french new wave film i i would assume and probably i assume back in the day oh it's probably just going to be about a middle-aged guy that's experiencing so much ennui maybe he wants to cheat on his wife like that's the, the the level of mundanity here that we're dealing with but it's done in an interesting, unique, fascinating way. And beyond that, I like one thing that I think this does, and Truffaut does, that Godard is a little bit less good with, is that we do get some of the agency of the female characters here. It's not just about Pierre. We get to know Nicole. We see that they actually have a connection. They speak for a very long time at a bar. They close it out. They, they're, they're both kind of on the same level intellectually, at least to some extent, or at least she's very interested in what he has to say. We get to see what his wife is feeling. It's not just about the dude, which, and maybe not so much Godard, but maybe a modern version of this would just be, hey, this guy had an affair with a girl and his wife isn't happy. This is richer than that. We have more character in in it than just that. Yeah, like, uh, and going off of that, like, just the pure filmmaking of of. <clears throat> of it because in the in the beginning you get a lot of shots of him by himself emphasizing like loneliness and then once once like they officially meet you get two shots and it's like it's this very simple uh thing that like i picked up on me like like okay like it's showing uh, isolation loneliness but it's uh but like this is for me more effective than like la ventura and showing like the loneliness i don't uh I we don't have like, anyone uh, getting sucked into the fog. It's just a guy I mean, alone with other people. La Ventura feels like a loneliness contained to me. Like the entire movie is loneliness. Like even the t- you know the parts where the people are falling in love, quote on things, and it's also 
<laughs> actually uh, freakier, you know, with the whole... That, that's something that these two movies have in con com common, which is, like, the commentary on men being gross, you know, yeah. uh, doggedly chasing after women, even yeah. after being rejected, like, thing. Because you messaged me, like, a few days ago, like, a common theme in the New Wave movies, in the movies period we covered so far is mediocre men because mm -hmm. yeah. like breathless um this uh laventura um it, even la strada i'd say yeah la strada like zampano is pretty like shitty of a person too yeah hey but he can bend steel with his lungs <laughs> yeah you can you can do something all right yeah mm -hmm. it's he's definitely not just using cheap metal and breathing in Oh, uh, this, this didn't come up on episode because I didn't know it at the time. But uh, Joel uh, Anthony Quinn is well was Mexican American, and he was kind of like a a huge movie star. So do you do, you, what what do you think of him being like the one like Mexican American superstar of his era? First of all, uh, doing Italian movies—that's a traitor. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, no Mexicano I know speaks Italian, so. That's a, it's a strict rule. No, I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I, I, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of how many movies I've actually seen Anthony Quinn in. Not, not that many. Hmm. So uh, it's okay. Yeah, that's fine. My my favorite Mexican actor is still. Uh, oh, Fune? Does, does he play a Mexican in a movie? Uh, there's one. I think it's a western he did in the '60s where he's a Mexican. Oh, that's funny. No, I was going to say the other guy, uh, the Jewish actor who played the Mexican in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Um, Eli Wallach? Eli Wallach, yeah. He's my favorite Mexican actor. <laughs> <laughs> Not Charlton Heston. Um, he's he's up there. He's up there. <laughs> but right. uh, I think uh, outside of the context of movies, Charlton Heston may have had some problems with uh, that. So <laughs> Yeah, just, just, just a couple. You know. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to get too much into politics. I feel like the uh, uh, last few episodes have gotten too much into it. Uh, I want to. Uh, just, there's just too much politics right in now. the world these days, I right? Know. Yeah, and I, I'm not saying don't talk about. It. I'm just saying like that's what the podcast is about. I, I just want to break from it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we we could talk about a weird political thing, which is how much access people had to the fucking airport in this movie. Yeah, that you can show up five minutes before a flight. They can say like, "Yeah, I'll just take you across the tarmac. I'll put the put the stairs back. Just yeah, just get on the plane, you silly writer." <laughs> yeah, yeah. At this point, I wrote my notes like, "This is a fantasy film. Like, what, <laughs> what is this world?" Uh, and you know what? He never would have met that stewardess if that hadn't happened. Like, this mm -mm. was all all part of the thing. And uh, if you tried to do that today, they would probably uh, strip search you and you would definitely not make your flight. I, I think just in terms of changes today, when he calls her room, like I, I feel myself cringing, just like, no, dude, don't do it. Yeah. It's not just that you're married. It's like, dude, come on, just let this lady live her life. And the fact that she actually goes for it, and, and part of me wonders if it's just because we do live in a different time where it's like, you know what, this gentleman was nice. I guess I owe him something when I really don't. Or is it because, well, I recognize this guy. He's famous. Maybe it'll be nice to go out to dinner with him. I Like this entire plot with this man would not happen in the year 2021 mm. yeah and like uh and that goes I, mean, I could uh, 
go back to Law of Terror, like that movie's commenting somewhat on like uh, like men pursuing women. Where in that movie, like you get plenty of scenes of like actually this is kind of gross. Where this movie, kinda, mm-hmm. I think I think uh, Soft Skin is trying to show that it's, that is it's gross, but at the same time it's like but he's so mediocre that it doesn't like come off as like that sleazy. And they've got that one scene where when his wife is found out and that guy starts pursuing her. Like, I, I don't think it's... It can't be the same guy from uh, when the stewardess was also getting stalked, but... No. It's just it's just a thing. <laughs> like, and I think it was that scene when they were actually filming it, since they're doing this, like, cinema verite style where the camera's, like, across the street. Mm-hmm. There were actually people that tried to intervene, just like, leave her alone! Like, we're filming a movie! <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad that people were saying something. Yeah. E- even though this is like 1960s France, where it's just like, hey, we're all in open relationships, let's just, you know, do everything. Mm-hmm. And people just jump straight to, like, we're dating, let's just get married, have a kid, then break up next year. Where <laughs> that seemed to just be the, the, the commonplace way of showing love and romance mm-hmm. until you fall out of it again and just meet the next person. And by the end of your life, you have 17 kids and uh, 24 marriages. <laughs> yeah, just like Jean-Paul Belmondo. Yeah. He's almost 90 and has a kid who's like 18 years old. <laughs> uh, yeah, look it up. I mean, it's... If you got the means. Yeah. And he's divorced from uh, from the mother of that child already, too. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh... Well, and, and that's the thing. Like, John, Bal- uh, John Paul Belmondo has that, like, that class, that, like, coolness that Pierre completely lacks. <laughs> this is the anti-John Paul Belmondo. Yeah, I don't think you ever, like, see him shirtless. Like, he... Like, uh, I don't think you want to. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, in Breathless, you get a whole lot of Jean-Paul, like, half-naked, and it's like, well, yeah, show off that body. He used to be a boxer. Like, he still looks good, and this guy is like, uh, like, like I feel like he would be ashamed to be, like, semi-nude on camera. Like, I, I would say that the 1960s, like, handsome man aesthetic is shirtless still wearing a fedora, whereas <laughs> as this guy was shirtless wearing a fedora, he'd look like a guy today wearing a fedora. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my lady. Uh, yes. you know. Miss Stewardess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to see... Call and I'll... apologize. By the way, what are you doing later? <laughs> no, hey, what, what do you mean? I'm a nice guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah t- 2021, the soft skin goes very differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not to say it's not like that, that makes it a bad movie. It's 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 a product of its era and the best. No, no, I yes. don't. We're just telling a story here. Exactly. It's not... <laughs> but you, you can't, like, it, it's just so crazy. Like, whenever this movie comes on, or when it came on, especially with the Raoul Cotard uh, cinematography, just the style, the class, the black and white, it just, it, it does bleed a sense of cool and a sense of classiness, even if the story and the characters within aren't as cool or classy as some other French New Wave characters or films. Like, I like when I put this on, it's like, I'm wearing my pajamas, I feel like I should be wearing a suit and tie to watch this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, and going back to what you were saying about the premiere at Cannes, um, this was a critical and box office uh, disappointment in uh like this was probably this is fourth or fifth movie so this was probably like the first big disappointment because uh, like it because uh, uh it was 400 blows shoot to piano player jules and jim and then this happens and it's like uh like this is the first slump in his career quote unquote uh, it's not his last though because right afterwards is fahrenheit 451 
which is probably a successful box office wise. I, I just don't think it was that did as well critically. Yeah, I used to have that on DVD, but I was in high school. I was like, this book's dumb. I'm not going to watch the movie. So I sold the DVD like after I got it for Christmas. That's, you did the opposite of what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to watch the movie and then pretend you, you read the book. No, I was a bad student with like reading. Like, I was like, fuck you. I'm not, I'm not going to like it, but I will read it. I <laughs> <laughs> mean, you were a good student. <laughs> the opposite of what... A bad student. Yeah, uh, I, I'd still not do good on the test and shit. I wouldn't pay attention. No, no, to no. It. I mean, tests are a whole other thing. Let's let's get into this. Uh, no. Yeah. All right. Um. So, why is this movie called The Soft Skin? I, I think it's I think it's referring to sex. I, I think the title is literally just about sex. I was thinking that, but at the same time, I was like, this that seems too on the nose. But this movie is also super on the nose. So it's like, yeah, it probably is just. It is as obvious as I assumed it to be. I, I think it's about the allure of, of a younger woman, not that his current wife is old by any stretch. I, I think it's about desire and sex. I don't know. Uh, I was also puzzling over it. It's like it, it that is the uh, I, I, that is the answer that like is most likely what's going on. So it's most likely not more complicated than that. But yeah. It, it is an. It, it, it strikes me as a sexy name for a mostly unsexy movie. Like it's not. Yeah, they, there's there's kind of a weird romanticism that is uh, that can be seen as sexy. You know, when they actually are clicking together, when they when they do feel like there's something going on. Um, but I would say that there's nothing. You know, when they're. <laughs> I don't. I, I. I can't even remember if there are scenes when there are like canoodling together, you know, kissing or anything like that. Yeah, th- th- there's a few, and, and I think there's true intimacy in those moments. Yeah, a- and it, it's not like completely disgusting, and I think that's what kind of gives uh, Francoise Dorliac, if I'm saying the name correctly, which I'm sure I'm not. It, it gives her character some agency in the fact that she truly seems to like this guy. She really does. Maybe she shouldn't because he's a married guy, but I, I think there is true intimacy between these two. I, I think that he does love her in a way when he shouldn't. I, I think he's kind of... like Even the scene later on where she says, oh, my father is coming to visit me. As he walks down, he spots an older man walking up the stairs, and he looks up just like, what if she's lying? He's like, that's an older man. It's obviously her dad. <laughs> he has to wait for her to say like, oh, hi, dad, in order for her to be... or for him to be okay. He's just... His emotions are, yeah, he he feels very emasculated, I think. And I think it's because he, maybe that's what the soft skin refers to. He He's very... He's also, <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's he a very does. soft guy, yeah. He's got a thin skin, at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I get that, you know. That's uh, back in the day when I was single. Uh, I, yeah, the, I had low confidence in myself. So if somebody was attracted to me, first of all, I was... I was like, oh, that has a confidence boost, except for somebody's going to come along who's no doubt better than me. <laughs> did, you, you know. did you think you'd be on the beach with uh, uh, with, with whoever it is, and some muscle man would show up and kick sand in your face and take your glasses? <laughs> it, it, ha- it happened once, okay? So it's okay. not like it's an unfair thing for me to worry about. I mean, you, right. you go there, and they're lifting those triangular weights, and uh, you think <laughs> you're just fine, and then all of a sudden... 
you know, your head is buried in the sandcastle, and a kid's crying and hitting you with a bucket. All right. Uh, on a on a different note, um, uh, my my, I guess like the thing that was most jarring to, for me was the shift at the end, when like the wife is like, uh, "We're gonna get divorced, but we'll still have sex," and uh, you mm-hmm. know, and it's like, huh. This is odd, and then she kills him at the at the very end. Like that felt a little over dramatic for what the movie was. But at the same time, okay. it's like he kind of deserved it. <laughs> they're they're getting a divorce, but she's under she is still under the idea that their marriage is just breaking up. Like she doesn't know about the affair. He has not admitted to an affair or anything like that. Yeah, and then and then she, you know, finds the role of film. <laughs> I, I think that she's using the divorce as a way of making this guy try to apologize. Like, hey, if you're going to treat me like this, I don't want to be with you. You need to start treating me better. And, like, yeah. when they do have sex, I think she truly expects, like, oh, we're fixed now. Yeah. And he's like, no, it's never going to work. Yeah. And fun fact about the shotgun thing at the end, mm-hmm. that was actually based on a story that Truffaut had read in the newspaper. So while mm. it seems far-fetched and uh, melodramatic... Happened in real life in Paris at some point n- near when this film was made. Oh. I didn't think it seemed far fetched or melodramatic. <laughs> I was like, if she does, it what happens I want to me her every to do, week. I'll give it five out of five. That was a lie. I did not give it five out of five, but it, that was exactly what I wanted to happen. Because like once you see the the gun in the closet, it's like, wait a second, is she really going to? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And then she, when she tries to hide it under her coat, it's like so obviously sticking out of the bottom, and she makes her way over there. It's it's France in the sixties. I mean, every every wife was walking around with a shotgun in case their wife <laughs> ran off with a stewardess, or their husband yeah. ran off with a stewardess. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, but uh, I do also appreciate like this. The wife does get her own agency, like you were saying earlier. You see her as a as a not. Uh, I won't say an equal necessarily, but you see her more as a person. Uh, uh, she's not just a cipher. She she actually, you see why she wants him back. They have a life together. You see that she does not want to just end this. She's not some sort of nag or uh, just, just downer. She She's a true person and they have a life together. And he's just grown slightly tired of it. But at the same time, he's too selfish to just say, I don't want this anymore. Yeah. And like, like, like they had plenty I wrote like they had plenty of outs to to circumvent like what's going to happen. Like this movie is like very fatalistic, uh, which I'm sure was like um like a noir influence of some sort. Uh, but uh, but there's just like there's so, so many parts where it's like where Pierre would just make a make a dumb choice and it's like like with, with the photo shoot and it's like don't get in a picture because this this will make things worse for you down the road. <laughs> This and, is his first time, okay? He doesn't know. <laughs> and, and like with the wife being like, well, I guess we can still have sex. And it's like, no, that's the wrong choice to make. Like, there are so many mm. points where it's like, that's just the, that's a, wor- you made like the worst choice you could. And so like, <laughs> down the road, it's going to make things like, like, things will literally explode by the end. Well, in in my opinion, it's it's not quite a French New Wave film unless the main character's dead at the end. <laughs> Not every French New Wave film ends like that. Spoiler alert for people that don't watch a lot of French New Wave films. Chances oh, are your good. protagonist is going to die at the end. I do, I, do uh, I mean, we both the Breathless and this one. Uh, La Strada doesn't have it, unfortunately. It would be great if at the end of La Strada, uh, 
not not the main woman but his original the woman that he's replacing the mm-hmm. the sister shows up and was like i was never dead i've been watching you and blows <laughs> him away on the beach yeah <laughs> well, uh, as he goes to a cafe shotgun sticking <laughs> out of the trench coat that's yeah, not well, french anyway that's italian isn't it yeah so, no, no, that makes that, sense. that's like semi-neo-realistic that's when fellini's like busting out of the uh the the mold there yeah but uh uh dave i don't know if you think this but in la strada i think zampano killed the previous woman huh and covered it up potentially or like this hit the body or something because like you see it i wouldn't be too surprised he's a pretty violent guy clearly he's (laughs) not too unfamiliar with murder yeah that's one of many things about the movie it's like that I, that I do appreciate it's like just the mystery of like well I thought he killed her but whatever uh, we, we did an episode on that that has come out by this point oh Joel this has a cat in it did it add to your list on Letterboxd yes it did okay good I want to make sure speaking of, speaking of the cat have either of you two seen Day for Night uh no when you see Day for Night there is a scene in Day for Night that is specifically about what they went through trying to film this scene uh, because they had a very hard time getting a cat to actually uh, go over to the food dish and uh, sniff at it or try to eat it or drink the milk. Hmm. And anyone who owns cats know that it's very difficult to get a cat to do what you want them to do. So they uh, there's an entire, I don't want to say lengthy scene, but they really go through how difficult that was in Day for Night. Uh, yeah. Like if, if, uh, I would never make a movie. I'll never have, but like I would never work with animals. That's just like a... <laughs> that's asking too much yeah every every director that makes a movie with animals as a main part says I'm never doing it again <laughs> like the Coen brothers when they were making Inside Lewin Davis they had to have like 10 cats and each cat was good at doing one activity that they needed the cat to do like mm-hmm. Ang Lee after he made Brokeback Mountain with trying to herd sheep he's like I'm never making a movie with animals again <laughs> it's a common thing I'm sure the director of Airbud felt the same way <laughs> yeah Laugh on the way to the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the uh, oh and oh, uh, why don't you mention like the dark humor early on, like in this? But like, there's a like one of the first things in the movie is Pierre coming home, and he's like tell his wife, "Oh, sorry, I'm late. There's a suicide on the tracks," and he just act like it's totally normal, <laughs> and just that goes, just "Yeah, like that was that was the moment I was like, okay." Well, that's my first. Well, first I was like, I'm gonna like this movie, and then it's like, oh fuck, you like Jonathan Harker. Then it's like, oh, I like this movie again pretty quickly after that. But I do this, <clears> like that. That sets up like the the dark humor and like the uh like it, it's not what you think it's going to be. At least for me, it wasn't what I, what I thought it was gonna be. I uh I don't have like much uh critical things necessarily to say besides like. It's it's super it's it's like done in a real, real exciting way, uh, it's like stylistically. I like the the set design and the fashion and the cars and shit. Like, it's it's definitely a time and a place and it's dated, but it's dated in a way that I like. Like down to it's like the um the hotel keys. Like I wanted to go into the screen and take those hotel keys with like the <laughs> giant ring thing with like with the uh, room number on it, like stuff like that. And just movie make like man just. Like this is just like so beautiful to see on screen, and and uh, this like aesthetically, like this was this really has a sweet spot for me. Like I said, I wanted to be wearing a suit while I was watching it. I felt underdressed. It's a very clean world that it all takes place in. 
Like, yeah, I get, I get that. Um, you were saying that you, you, one of the things you liked is you didn't know how it was going to go. See, that's, I think because we watched La Ventura mm-hmm. right before we, or not right before, it was the one previously mm-hmm. seen before this. Uh, that was a movie that kept me constantly surprising me like oh it's doing this doing this so trying to figure out what was actually going to happen like and and i think that this also does that like you say especially when we're putting in all these hitchcock elements like okay but one thing i definitely want to talk about was the use of light and shadow in this mm-hmm. there are so many scenes that are just the most mediocre walking upstairs or sitting in a cafe or you know out at night you know walking on the street thing where we use these strong strong shadows and these like striking things in the background that like almost take you like to the point where it's distracting it was distracting to me like taking away from whatever was going on on screen because I was like they are using like the chioscura. I, I don't know if I'm saying that word right. I, I've read it, but I've never said it out loud. Uh, to like make it look like somebody could come up behind them and kill them right now, or like <laughs> we're trying to like this is a symbolism thing. Like we would be using in uh, you know Nosferatu or something. But it's like no, it's just a it's just the way the scene is lit and. It kept striking, like, kept pulling me out of the movie because I was like, wow, what is going on with this background? Like, oh, nothing. (laughs) Nothing. They're just talking about what they have to do tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) See, I I love Raul Cotard's cinematography. It it really bridges the gap between this just very simplistic cinema verite style and this grander, like... Uh, this great—it's almost hard to really describe it because there is this this flourish to it at the si- same time as it being almost understated, and that combination of the two—I I would say he's the defining cinematographer of the French New Wave. He's probably done more French New Wave films than any other cinematographer, and especially since he worked with Truffaut and Godard, who are the two main names of the movement itself. I, I think that's kind of what makes him and that style stand out to me as being sp- specific to this time period, specific to this movement, and and the real look of it. Yeah, I, I was looking up like uh, what he shot, and uh, you are not uh, you are not uh, lying. Like he shot a lot of the movies we are going to cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I lost my thought there. Yeah, it's, it's it's mostly Godard with some Truffaut. I'm seeing uh, Jacques Demy pop up in here. Don't think he ever worked with Romare. Did he ever work with Romare? No, I don't think so. Yeah, he pretty much did everything for Godard in the in the in up until '67 when Godard went absolutely insane. Um, so you get all that good stuff. Yeah, and then he works with uh, Costa Gavras in the '70s. Oh yeah, with Z the. Algerian movie, quote unquote. Uh, anyway, I, 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 that's a movie. Like, I'm sure it's very good. It's just it was listed as an Algerian movie for the Oscars, so it's listed as like an African film, which I don't know if it really counts as an African film. But, it, yeah, uh, they just the it, it's it's a French film essentially. It's it's a really <laughs> great movie, especially for the political turmoil we're going through right now. I wouldn't call it uplifting, 
uh, but they shoot it in Algeria. Everything's in French. There, I'm sure, are some Algerian actors. No, there definitely are some Algerian actors in it, but the uh, I would say the principal cast are all French, and it's about something that happened in Greece. Okay, because it's always listed under African films. So this one was like, I don't know about that. Mm, yeah, that's it's colonial Africa, perhaps, <laughs> but uh, yeah, not Africa, Africa. I mean, how do you feel about South African films that are filmed by, you know, white people? Like white, yeah. South, white South Africans, or yeah, white South Africans. Yeah, that that counts. It's just it's like if it's like uh, someone like a someone who's French in white who makes a film in Africa like does it count as an African yeah. film exactly yeah well Costa oh, Gavras was yeah. Costa Gavras was Greek who then emigrated to France and would make films about other political like uh, uh, the, the confession is it that's the name of the movie the confession is it about Czech uh, Czechoslovakia Z is about Greece but he kind of sets it he, he films it in Algeria because it's supposed to be about a fictional nation and a hmm. fictional election because he couldn't outright say this is what happened in greece because he probably would have been arrested or something like that so he just yeah. makes it up that makes sense uh-huh. it, it's can, actually a very fascinating film i can right. know this person's name because he is one of my favorite movies i didn't for some reason i've never uh i did not know who did any of it uh-huh. uh what i was gonna say uh we watched uh to to go slightly off subject me and sarah watched um, the Night Porter yesterday. That's a, that's a movie with all kinds, like all kinds of. It's an English language movie about the uh, taking place in Germany, but actually filmed in Italy by an Italian director. It's like okay, that's that, a, yeah. Some wacky stuff happens there. Yeah, um, that's a movie that I I was. Uh, this is this is I have to really I haven't really processed my thoughts on it, but that was a movie that was much less. Uh, it yeah, it's, it's hard to describe. Like I've seen some really terrible because you know the time period when people were recording things like that uh, about what happened in Nazi Germany. Like I was expecting to see much worse things than I did. Like I do see, you do see terrible things in that movie. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I don't want anyone to think I'm like, that's great. (laughs) But, but like, uh, you know, I'm going to go watch night and fog. If I want to actually feel Hmm. affected on, you know, uh, like the gravitas of what happened. Yeah. Looking at the description of it, it's, uh, it looks like it'd be a good double feature with like, um, seven beauties. Which yeah, is a movie that you need to see. Which uh, All right. Seven Beauties is pretty grim, but it's easy to deal with uh, grimness. Okay, it's all really funny. It, it it's like a wacky comedy mixed with like a Holocaust like drama, <laughs> which sounds oh, well, the perfect insane. combination. It, yeah, it, uh, we might cover it because we're gonna do a Lena Vertmuller episode because Lena is the best <laughs> and she deserves so much more attention. I have not seen Seven Beauties either, but does it have sadomasochistic uh, Nazi sex? Um, no. But you get a, a gag of <laughs> Giancarlo Giannini has to dispose of the body of a fat man, but the the guy was so fat he has trouble getting the body out out uh, out of the house. <laughs> oh man, that's my speed right there. That's the kind of stuff I like to watch. And you get a uh, boomerang guy. Uh, Oh, Fernando Ray's in this. Yes, Fernando Ray. 
and not not as much as you'd like, but it's still enough. Like he, there's there's never enough Fernando Ray in movies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there could always be more. Um. Anyway, uh, most of my notes uh, of the movie are sort like we kind of covered of the soft skin we've covered already. Um, this one like that's cosmetic, literally cosmetic thing is like um, Francois, um, Nicole. Uh, her hair is like I thought it was a wig, but I'm pretty sure it's it's natural. Like it's like it looks like a, a shampoo co- commercial. Like with her hair, it's so thick and full. And it's like I wonder how much they how much they had to spend on just like making sure her hair looked perfect. Like it's it, like it, I found it distracting the first time I, I noticed it. <laughs> I, I'm sure they spared no expense. That's just the way their hair looked back then. Yeah, right? that's that's all I ever see in these movies is perfect hair. Yeah, well, I, with La Mater, I thought some uh, well the the celebrity lady in that I thought was wearing a wig. It, it stuck out, but 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 uh, in this movie, it's like. I'm pretty sure that was all real and stylized. But uh. That's one of the crazy things I think about the 60s as a decade. A lot of the fashion of the 60s never really went super out of fashion. Like, sure, men don't dress like that anymore, or women's haircuts aren't like that anymore. But if you saw someone dress like that, you'd be like, oh, they just look really nice today. You wouldn't say, what are you wearing? It's it's seven, it's 60 years later. Yeah. It, it's really timeless. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um... I don't love this movie. I like it a lot, though. Oh, uh, yeah. You just uh, spit on this movie. I didn't realize. No, I'm just <laughs> yeah, it's uh, of the three uh, uh, Truffaut I've seen so far. It's uh, number three because uh, Bride really? Red Black. I I, I do like I like Bride Red Black more. It's more like streamlined and like to like its bare essentials and like and it's more more of a story that I. Um, in that type of story that I would rather watch in general. And I just read the mm. book too, and it's also a really good adaptation of the book. That <laughs> I'm not trying to rip off a Pink Smoke podcast, but uh, Truffaut fixes that ending from the book because the ending of the book is fucking garbage. Hmm. I, that's one of the few Truffauts, especially from this time period, that I've not seen. No, uh, I, I've seen, I've seen all of the Antoine Duenel films. I've seen The Last Metro. I've seen, obviously, uh, 400 Blows, uh, Stolen Kisses. Oh, that's... I'm going Antoine Winnell. Shoot the Piano Player, uh, Jules and Jim, this, uh, and I think... Oh, Day for Night, a few others that are kind of spattered throughout there, like two English girls. Uh, but I'd say the big things that I'm missing are the story of Adele H., The Bride Were Black, and probably Mississippi Mermaid. Uh, Bride Were Black... Uh... It's kind of hard to come, a little hard to come by. I had to get a yeah a Blu-ray. That's the reason that I haven't gotten to them yet. <laughs> I had to get like a, a Blu-ray off of eBay like months ago, uh, when I was preparing for it, and uh, it, it it is out there. It's just for yeah. some reason maybe <clears throat> is that, right. Is that the one that I'm supposed to be yeah. finding a copy of? Yeah, Finderberg will oh, come on for that because that's a movie he dearly loves, and a book he loves too. Well, we're gonna talk about the book in that All one. Right. So maybe read try read some of it. It's it's a quick easy read. Uh, based on our other podcast about vampires, that's mm-hmm. about the speed I read. So there's no way I'm okay. going to be able to finish it. That's three fine. episodes in like eight months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, Joel, would you recommend people watch um, the Soft Skin? Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong. Like, I don't think this is a bad movie. I, I was going to say, no movie that ends the way this movie does is a bad movie. Like, if 
you took uh, fateful findings and at the end okay. instead of him giving that speech in front of uh, the you know whatever uh, in Washington DC the woman <laughs> that he has been uh, smooching with in the movie comes up and shoots him with a shotgun I would give that movie at least three and a half stars <laughs> which is what I gave this movie uh, but this is much better than Fateful Findings. Sorry, uh, Neil Brain and Neil Brain fans. Is Neil Brain the one that's libertarian, or is that like the, the Canadian guy? I wouldn't be surprised if he's libertarian. I mean, I think that if you are independently funding and starring in your own films, you're a libertarian, mm-hmm. whether you think so or not. I don't know if you can pin down Neil Brain's political uh, agency. It's, yeah, I think it's just Neil Breen. Uh, is the best Neil Breen is maybe not human. Neil Breen is all. Yeah, a, a man with the charisma and body like that, he can do whatever <laughs> he wants. Yeah, you know? it would not surprise me though if he ran for president under the libertarian ticket. He does yes. seem like a libertarian political all, candidate. You, I just threw away all my socialist democratic thing. I'm now a libertarian. Uh, just uh, sorry, I don't know what happened, people. Uh, <laughs> taxes oh, no. are bad. No. <laughs> Uh, God. Um, uh, yes, so I know. I think people, th- this is just, it, it's fine. But I, I to go back to what we were talking at almost the beginning about, like walking to a movie expecting a masterpiece. This is a movie where if you walk in expecting it to be a masterpiece, you probably are going to be like, oh, well, that was okay. Uh, and it's not a fault of the movie it's a fault of the perception of the movie and the way criterion like if you look up about this it's like this is uh one of the underappreciated appreciated masterpieces like you might even say that or mm. they they might even say that in the description and uh, i think that was kind of one of the reasons i got thrown off but it does it does have a weird tone thing it's on purpose mm-hmm. um it is beautiful and uh it's about mediocre men, so if you can stand watching another movie about a mediocre <laughs> man right now, it's difficult during this time period. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's good. This is the first of many movies about... Well, not the first. This is like the fourth of many movies about mediocre men we're going to talk about. I'm excited like, for this to continue to be the continuing trend, because I feel like this is a French New Wave thing that probably people have talked about, but I haven't heard anyone necessarily discuss like the mediocrity of french new wave men i don't know as a mediocre man myself i like seeing myself on screen (laughs) i i think based on your output you're at least a slightly better than mediocre man thank you oh i try yeah yeah my twitter is what separates me from mediocrity yeah (laughs) i don't agree with joel but you are a nice person oh Oh, thank you (laughs) thank you all right. Now, I, I, I like you keeping me down to uh, <laughs> get me down Spencer, to earth there. Spencer, two guests, drop dead. <laughs> now for the important part, the homework. Watching this movie, they go to a hotel that's kind of cheap looking, and I just watched um, Muppet Caper a couple nights ago, and uh, they remind me of the happiest hotel, and got my thinking like. Uh, of, of the French New Wave people, who who are their Muppet counterparts? I mean, I feel like Kermit is the is a mediocre mm-hmm. man. Like, I, oh, like Kermit's he's charming, phenomenal, and fun, and he does all kinds of things. But like, there are so many situations where he's like, "Well, I think if we just do our best, we'll be okay." It's like, hey, mediocre man, you got to get in there and kick ass. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, Miss Piggy. 
you know, like, uh, no, but, uh, uh, it could be somebody else, you know, um, yeah, I feel like Rolf is not mm-hmm. the right character. He seems like he would be perfect in one of our Italian movies though, because he's, <laughs> uh, he's got this, uh, outside charisma that just, uh, comes off of his fluffy exterior. Stewardess obviously has to be Jan because there's only Jan. two women Muppets. <laughs> Um, and the Muppets uh, sitcom from like five years ago, there's a female rat, uh, Yolanda. Oh, that's nice. Oh, uh, I think the rats she... are my favorites. Yeah, R- Rizzo's great. I think she's Rizzo's cousin. I can't remember. Oh. So even R- Rizzo doesn't get any play. Okay, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> no, Rizzo's horny on that show. <laughs> oh yeah, well yeah. I mean, it's Rizzo. He's always he's always getting around. Come on, wait. What? There's only one female Muppet. What is he horny for? On the on the Muppet show from like five years ago. It's Scandal. better. It's better than what you would think it is. Yeah, that, that's the one that's supposed to be like a uh, mockumentary, right? Uh yeah. Mm-hmm. Office space style, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, like I, at first I was like, I don't know about this, but it, it uh, uh, but it does a pretty good job. I, it should have lasted a little mm-hmm. longer. Yeah, I don't. I, yeah. I can't comment. I haven't seen any recent Muppet stuff, so uh, Muppets now is mostly good. The Swedish hmm. Swedish Chef segments are the best part of it. And Danny Trejo is in one. And uh, it, there's a really funny joke that I still think about from that segment with Swedish Chef and uh, Danny Trejo. But I will not say what it is. This uh, at least watch that episode. It, it's that that's uh, yeah. Yep. True fact, Danny Trejo is the Muppet that has appeared in the most movies. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, but with like the French New Wave directors and like the key people like Godard, Rivet, all those people. Uh, so for me, I have like Kermit is Truffaut because he's mm-hmm. sweet, he's humanistic. You know, he's kind of the de facto leader, uh-huh. sort of. Godard is Sweetums because he's a monster. <laughs> 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 no, uh, Godard was tough. I par- uh, my mind went with Robin because he's not quite Kermit, but he's you know he, he's he's trying to be like Kermit a little bit. Um, I mean, we don't. Robin doesn't have his uh, personality fleshed out. You know, he's just kind of like a. Uh, Chabro is Gonzo because he's he he's has a very has a super varied career. And Gonzo, if you've seen Muppet Caper, he's a his speeches is quote uh, whatever. <laughs> And you can't really pinpoint uh, them. <laughs> I feel like Gonzo, like, is there uh-huh. a director who, you know, it makes me think good Godard because he used Anna Karina so much in his stuff, and, and like they were they were married, right? Um, uh, were they married? They were. They got married like right away, and almost got divorced like right away. Yeah. Hmm. So I'm th- I'm thinking Gonzo is Godard because. That would make Anna Karina Camilla the chicken, of course. Yeah, I'm I'm on board <laughs> with that as well. And at some point, it changes over to Miss Piggy. You know, that, that, <laughs> I don't if you've seen that uh, seminal episode of the original Muppet Show where uh, Miss Piggy thinks that Kermit is going to tell her that he loves her, and when she gets in the room, it's actually Gonzo. Oh, yes, I can't stop thinking about you. <laughs> Together, we're going to make beautiful music. You know, I don't know what he says, but. Uh, Wow, that is the first time I've ever tried to do a Gonzo impersonation. <laughs> nice job, Joel. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's pretty good. I, yeah, I, okay. I, I, I like the Kermit. I like the Gonzo. Oh, cool. I'll work on it. <laughs> Anyways, 
but I honestly I didn't uh, do too much on the, any other directors. Yeah, well, I, I I have one comment here in that mm-hmm. Rivette would be the one human character because Rivette always thinks there's something going on and is all about conspiracy and people would be mm-hmm. like, what do you mean? There's nothing weird here. And meanwhile, he's like, why am I the only one that's not a Muppet? And they're like, what do you mean? You're, we're not Muppets. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I put, uh, for me, uh, uh, for Demi, um, maybe Rolf, because he's a musical one. Because Dr. T... See, I would put Rolf as as um, uh, Michel Legrand. I, I, I came with the, with the basic ones, because uh, my French New Wave uh, knowledge is pretty... Uh, Pretty basic with like the <laughs> key ones, and uh, Varda is Miss Piggy because uh, one like the because uh, uh, she is a very uh, uh, notable, like a striking, like fascinating, powerful figure, and Miss Piggy is that as well. So who I mean, who is uh, uh, who is she married to? Um, she Demi. was married to Demi. Yeah, Demi. Yeah, because I mean, like in order of Muppets, that would have to be Kermit, but. Yeah, we've already got Kermit filled, so I think. Uh, let's see yeah. who would uh, right. be. Uh, Dave, what are yours? No, 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 no. So no. I'm, I'm not. This is important, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can wait. I can wait. I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Scooter. 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 Hmm. I yeah, Scooter is Demi. Yeah, I can get behind that. Yeah. Because although Scooter may seem as like the most. Un- uh, you know, compared to the rest of them, like what is Scooter's personality? He does solid work. He's he's the behind the scenes guy. Uh, uh, like, and when you watch a Demi movie, it's like everything feels like it's been planned out in this meticulous way. But it's also a big production. Like he's got a handle on the stuff, and uh, he doesn't seem like a the kind of person. Well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about the Scooter. Okay. Does he have a sister? I don't know. Muppet Babies is a canon. Uh, in the sitcom, he tries to he goes on a date with Ch- uh, Chelsea Handler. Oh wow! I think that would work well together. <laughs> yeah, his mom doesn't she like can, it. She but... could really break him out of his shell. Yeah, his mom doesn't like it though because she's like a, a racy comedian. Oh wow! <laughs> Scooter's mom. Yeah, because Scooter's like a he's like a millennial kid kind of story. <laughs> what? In the sitcom. They kind of play oh, come like, on. play him as like a like a college age 20 something who lives with his parents alright he's he, in, in the show he kind of feels more like the intern that's like waiting for his big break oh okay it, it's oh, hard it, it's really uh, clearly when they thought up the Muppets they were not thinking up who their French New Wave counterpart was going to be because it's, <laughs> nice. it's, it's, it's a difficult assignment yeah I, mean, I would say though in terms of looks Sam Eagle and Romare go together but personality wise <laughs> not so much Romero was not all about America. Yes, yeah, I, I skipped Sam Eagle altogether because, like, I can't think of any any of them that were like super into America. Maybe Godard, yeah. American movies, but that's kind of it. No, I, outside of that, I'd say he's pretty anti-American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sam the Eagle was uh, uh, what, what's the guy who did uh, Convoy and uh, the Wild Bunch and Oh, Sam Peckinpah. Yeah, it's definitely Sam Peckinpah. <laughs> <laughs> America, manly. <laughs> and I, I think outside of that, who we have left? Uh, uh, Elaine Renat and uh, Chris Marker. I'll, I'll say yeah. Beaker and Animal. Which one's Animal? A- Animal is Chris Marker because Chris Marker is just kind of 
out there, picked a fake name, uh, <laughs> makes weird experimental films. Uh, that's Animal with a Beret. Okay. Oh. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, an uh, animal- Mr. Director, we've uh, <laughs> we've got this set for La Jetty set up here, and uh, the still image. Is there uh, anything we need here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure if you guys have seen Muppet Caper recently, but there's a amazing joke where uh, the 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 band misses um, uh, the or a Renoir um, showing and. Uh, animal screams Renoir, and he's angry he missed the Renoir showing. <laughs> oh, here's yeah, a crazy I mean... thing. Speaking of French New Wave with Muppet uh, Caper, according to the IMDb credits, Eric Romare is in the movie. I can't find him. Um... I don't think he's really there. I think it's someone said that looks like mm-hmm. Eric Romare. I think it's him. But uh, if anyone listening oh. can prove that Eric Romare is in a Muppet Caper, uh, I would love that uh, evidence. Hmm. That's cool. He's yeah. listed as like man on bench. He he's not the old man at at the part with um uh Oscar. No, that was um oh, who was that? That that is somebody though. Yeah, I don't think Eric Romero would have been the celebrity cameo they were going for, but who knows? <clears throat> uh, yeah. Anyway, Romero Romer saw Trufant in uh, Close Encounters of the Fifth. Yeah. Uh, the, is the fifth kind? Is the sixth kind? Well, God, what is wrong with my brain? Third? Anyways, third Close kind. Encounters the third kind. I'm talking about the sequels, the fifth and sixth kind. Uh, yeah. No, the, yeah, those straight to DVD uh, movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, that's all. Yeah, that's they have all Eric Romare listed as old gentleman in Park. Who knows huh. who that is? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I'm trying to think of like there's an old man in, in the park when they first land in London, but that can't be him. I don't know. Uh, a, a Google search reveals no no information that is very important. I think uh, this is going to be a podcast all its own at this point. We're going to have to figure it out. All right. So, uh, yeah, that was Muppets French New Wave. Is this a dumb idea that I thought of? Uh, probably should save that for, for a Godard episode when I run out of things to say about Godard. But whatever. It's fine. You never will. Yeah, that's why I have guests on every Godard episode, so I don't have to talk as much. <laughs> Excellent. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, 196... Also, uh, watch Muppet. Anything Muppets. Uh, it's, it's all at least good. At least. Uh, I think everything before Jim Manson passed away is great. Everything yeah. afterwards goes, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, it gets most... Uh, I mean, honestly, the best Muppets thing since his death is, like, probably Christmas Carol. That That is one of my favorite Muppet movies. I think that is fantastic. I watched I wish it. that for the first time in, in its entirety like as an adult this year well last year and uh, like I had all these memories come flying back where I was like oh I had watched this a lot as a kid I just totally like forgot and uh, I, I wish they had stayed with that thing where there's just going to be literary, uh, literary adaptations with the Muppets they only did two and then they went off in a very different direction I think they should get back on that uh, on that wavelength there mm-hmm <laughs> Yeah, but I, I did like their adaptation of Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, th- th- that idea came from the uh, Magic Lantern podcast group. Cole posted a picture of Seven Samurai with the Muppet uh, of the Muppets, mm. and that kind of thing. Like, oh, you can do Muppets for anything. And so, was it was it the one where only one person is a person in the rest are all Muppets? No, it was like uh, it was like. Uh, uh, Kermit is the leader. Um, your dad. Um, 
my Sh- Shoshido uh, or Sh- not, Shimura. Shoshido, uh, Shimura. Yeah, obviously Shimura is Kermit, and Scooter was in there. I'm not sure who Scooter was supposed to be, but uh, it was like animals Tofune, uh, Mofune, obviously, and then like a bunch of others. I can send posts in the picture, but uh, we're here to talk about that. We're here to talk about 1964 movies. All right. Um, why don't one of you tell us? 1964 movies that you also like and by us uh why doesn't the guest go first i assume that's me i i feel guesty I, I have a lot of the guest no. <laughs> <laughs> i actually have a lot of japanese movies uh from 1964 to recommend mm-hmm. uh, one good. of my favorite yeah one of my favorite movies of all time woman in the dunes by Teshikahara. that is fantastic same year uh really the best movie I've ever seen about Stockholm Syndrome, and uh, the best way to describe it is a Japanese two-and-a-half-hour-long Twilight Zone episode. Onibaba is also great. Um, I'm skipping one because I actually realized I believe it was on Spencer's list. Uh, other French films that are great this year, uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, as well as, hold on, what else do I have here? Diary of a Chambermaid. Um, and then one last Japanese movie I'm going to recommend here, because for some reason, I always have this movie and the soft, squint, uh, soft skin intertwined in my mind. And I, they're very thematically different, but for some reason, they kind of got put into the same little drawer in my brain. And that is, let me get the actual director's name here, uh, Masahiro Shin, uh, Shinoda's Pale Flower, part of the Japanese New Wave. It's a gangster film. Mm-hmm. Something about it feels very similar to the soft skin. It's really great. I highly recommend it. It's not one that's talked about too often, but uh, definitely seek that out. Uh, I think it would make for a very interesting and different uh, double feature with the soft skin. They're both mm-hmm. kind of romances that don't go 100% well. All right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Umbrellas will be an upcoming episode with Alexandria because uh, if she's on a show, it has to be a musical, and that's kind of like how it's, how it's worked out. Wow, when did you make that rule against her? I'm like, sorry, it, no musicals this year, Alexandria. It, it's happened last season when every episode she picked was a musical. No, no, it's fine. I'm joking. Yeah, I like having a musical expert. Yeah, even though you hate musicals, except for gentlemen prefer blondes. I also like. And you're uh, and between us, you were the theater kid, but I like musicals more than you. Yeah, I think that's because you weren't awash in them for at some point in your life previously. Yeah, maybe. Do you want to go? Yeah, fine, I'll go. Um, <clears throat> going back to uh, last season, Nothing But a Man. It's a great slice of life uh, of what it was like to be a black man in the uh, American South in the early 1960s. Um, like, not much happens. It's just, like, you see this guy's life, and uh, you see, like, this... Like, and racism doesn't really enter the picture except for a couple scenes. And just like, yeah, black people are just also people too, and they had lived their own life. And you get to get to see this like it. This would make a like nothing but a man with a great double feature with um, uh, Killer of Sheep. Although Killer of Sheep is much more uh upsetting with like the imagery of slaughterhouse stuff, but it's still like also like another like black slice of life story, like su- like very American, like Sammy. I don't know if Sam Eagle would like like these movies. They portray America in a, ba- in a bad light. <laughs> but also listen to um, the episode, uh, I mean, Dick's episode last season, 
we were talking about that because Marcus Penn has a has an interesting story about um, Ivan Dixon, who was a star of Nothing But a Man, that I will not say on here. Uh, other one was uh, Fanny Hill. It's a lesser Russ Meyer movie. A lot of people don't like it, but I found it really charming. It's like a lot of punny sexual humor, and it's a gun for hire joint he did, so it's not like big boobs and like Fellini style referency stuff. Like it's just like, and it's kind of a weird sex comedy he did with us. It's also a period piece, but uh, yeah, I I I enjoy Fanny Hill even though it's uh, you know. Kind of like, kind of weird and sloppy. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Three Outlaw Samurai, the Hideo Gosha movie. It is, uh, well, Gosha is one, one of my favorite directors, period. Uh, and this was his debut feature. It's kind of a ripoff of Yojimbo and Sanjuro. Down to like the last, uh, the final scene is a ripoff of a one of the opening scenes of Yojimbo. Uh, but don't let that like dissuade you. Like it's it's like takes like the Kurosawa approach of samurai movies, but it's like, hey, what if it's even what if it's like a little more violent, a little more unpleasant, a little dirtier, a little more like just like these people are are actually kind of horrific people who will do violent things to each other, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's not his best, but it's a still a very good solid movie. And he only got better uh, as he as he got older. I'll save other ones for next episode. Sixty four. What a good year! Like there, there are already things on my list. Like I, I watched some other stuff because I was like, well, I keep coming up short on these. But sixty four had a bunch of things I'd already seen. So, uh, like, you, I'm going to save some for what? What's the next movie? Um, Blonde Black Lace. Oh yeah, yeah. That's also sixty four. It's not. 65 secretly and yeah, i see unless i 64 i'm a it, stickler it's a baba movie it's gonna be in a, be in a show okay well anyway um oh I... fuck uh, there's the audrey movie from this year it's one of the ones i haven't seen my fair mm-hmm. lady but i'm sure mm-hmm. she's the best part of it that's maybe? it maybe maybe she's always the best part of her movies sure Okay, so I'm going to mention uh, the one I did not finish, but I do want to mention anyways because I have been. You brought up the conversation, which will bring me into the other movie I'm going to mention. So the movie is. What is it called? Um, hold on. Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> Quite on? S- Quite on, thank you. Quite on. Which is a gorgeous uh, series of ghost stories, Japanese ghost stories, um, directed by Masaki Kobayashi, and it's got our our boy uh, <clears throat> uh, Nakadai in it, mm-hmm. in at least one of the stories. And it is not; it's it's just so gorgeous, like the sets and the costume designs and the the you know there these. This one scene that really like knocked my socks off that I had to like pause it is just in the the first story where uh, the protagonist has a new wife and his new wife is a a delicate flower or whatever compared to 
his previous wife and um she is being there she has a bunch of servants around her and she's out on what it looks like an outside part of their home that is completely brown the the, the background is brown all the servants are wearing brown but she herself is in a robe and uh, i think it's i want to say it's blue uh, I could be wrong. I apologize. <laughs> but it, either way, the, the thing is, it is so striking that the color, every other one of the colors is the same shade of this brown, except for her robe. And it, yeah, it, choices like that keep happening throughout the movie that I've seen so far. And, you know, I'm, I'm about halfway through. And, what happened was I got on Twitter where people were uh, talking about Japanese movies from the 60s. And I said, yeah, I just I just started watching Kwaidan again. And I got through it. And, and like, why don't American movies look this good? Like, why, why do they feel so lame compared to what I'm seeing here? Like, it, it's kind of like the Japanese had their mind on this this thing that wasn't out here and you know i got a lot of like oh yeah yeah it's really cool stuff like that and somebody said like i think you're forgetting grandma's boy which they're <laughs> totally right That's, that is an, uh, that uh, was like, upcoming guest Funderburg, <laughs> intricately laid out movie and then later in the day uh i didn't finish quite on <laughs> sorry i will but uh i wanted to watch something where i didn't have to read the subtitles and uh, it was like, oh, okay, another 64 movie. Um, oh, ooh, this is a Vincent Price here, uh, Mask of the Red Death. Let me check this out. And I got slapped in the face. Because this is a movie where it's directed by Roger Corman, who I, mm-hmm. has a reputation for being cheap and you know getting movies done really quickly and stuff like this. This movie is so pretty. Like, do you know who, do you know who's a, who shot it? No. Nicholas Rogue. Oh my gosh, who's that? Oh, <laughs> uh, don't look now. Oh. oh. you don't want me to look now? <laughs> that is another movie that has that going on. You're that I totally get that. Yeah, but like just like the colors when they when they're, you know, in the castle in this each separate room having its color and of course the the man in red that you know shows up in these things is so striking so beautiful like i was like okay maybe i maybe i don't know what i'm talking about maybe i just haven't seen the right american movies and you know vincent price chewing up that scenery this the whole 60s aesthetic where it's like oh this is a period piece except we're wearing all these anachronistic clothes and hairstyles and things like that and speaking in a way that is very Poe-like. It's like it doesn't matter. Like so, Wait, uh, if Mask you haven't is, seen the Mask of Red Death, that's the one with the Hop Frog as a little person, and he lights someone yes. on fire in a, in a gorilla suit. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Spoiler. Well, and I have that on Blu-ray sitting on my shelf unwatched, and you are selling me on it. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say um, it is currently on the Criterion Channel, but it is going to be removed on the beginning of february i believe so if you have criterion channel i suggest putting that on and if you don't i suggest finding it anyways because it is a it is an excellent fun movie and it is the like i said set design close design all this stuff is just superb 
Yeah, it's one of my favorite movies, like of the of the sixties. Like it, I love everything about that movie. And there's one weird element of like, uh, I think an adult woman dubbing uh, the child actress, which is kind of. Is there something weird with like the dubbing of the of child actress? Like that's weird, but it doesn't get like. But that's but yes. you can, yeah, you can kind of look past that. That was weird. It is very strange. I. I take it back. I don't own it, so I'm definitely gonna have to check this out on the Criterion <laughs> Channel before it goes away. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I was gonna recommend that next episode. So thanks a lot. Sorry. I might be might uh, well, uh actually. You uh, snooze, you lose. <laughs> this comes out in March. Uh, yeah, I think this is for March, and so I will my my episode of the mustache the. Uh, mustachioed podcastio might be out and i was on uh on that with uh daniel talking about uh another vincent price movie theater of blood because that that's another like kind of hammy but uh brilliant um vincent price movie where he uh kills he's like a, a theater actor who kills 10 critics who gave him a bad review of a shakespeare play and every kills a shakespeare reference that might be out by then i'm not really sure Sounds like somebody's fantasy. It's a really cool movie. All except there's a gay joke that is actually kind of that's really funny, but it's Vincent Price being like a gay hairdresser with the afro. Oh, so it's a, yeah, it's it's inappropriate, but it is a comical <laughs> performance. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's one of his main disguises. But uh, and by this point, I don't know. I'll be on podcast and shit. If you follow if you follow the podcast the Twitter feed, you'll know. Sure. I can't remember right now. J Dog, you? I mean, uh, what do you mean? Like other stuff this, I'm doing? This is March time. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know uh, because uh, we we dropped a, some things have happened, but like the third episode of uh, the Dead Travel Fast podcast was finally put together by me and dropped, and uh, we had a really great guest on there uh, from the. Uh, Tracks of the Damned. Tracks of the Damned, yeah, a podcast where he does a commentary track for horror movies, and he, he was just w- super. He has one for the movie we talk about in the third uh, episode, yeah. which is the horror of Dracula. And Christopher Lee, yeah, and he just did like the whole Jason series, as mm-hmm. of this recording, just did like the whole Jason series, a commentary track nice. for each one. Yeah. And uh, we have to, there's definitely going to be more episodes, but uh, we have to figure out what we're going to be watching because of some rescheduling things, which is fine. Yeah. Uh, please don't send me into outer space. It's still non-hiatus. If it's ever coming back, I don't know. I like to be honest, but hopefully someday when uh, Aaron's child is like 17, we can record again if the, if the Earth hasn't fallen into the sun. All right. And uh, Dave, will you be on Flixwise Canada or Wrong Reel again? Or um... uh, I, I have an un, I have a recorded episode of Flixwise Canada. I don't know when it's going to be released. At some point, I assume. Uh, uh, James and I have a few episodes of Wrong Reel planned. Uh, if you're not up to date with some of my appearances, I was on an episode of Criterion Now fairly recently. Uh, 
James and I recorded an episode on Eric Romero's Six Moral Tales this past year, so if you're trying to get more French New Wave stuff, not trying to keep people from listening to your show, obviously, I, I think you had uh, some of the Six Moral Tales on that list, but actually a lot of them take place or were filmed after the French New Wave itself. Uh, and I was on a Flixwise Canada talking about the Japanese Ring movies. Uh, but outside of that, I should be on more podcasts in the future. I just can't say exactly what the contents are going to be because I don't know yet. All right. And uh, you will return at least a couple more times on here. One for a Godard. I look forward to it. Yeah, Godard and some other shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, this, was a, this was a blast. Uh, looking forward to when you come back. And uh, Likewise. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, uh, everyone watch more Baba movies because we're going to cover um, Blonde Black Lace with returning MVP from last season, uh, Melly Daniels. Mm-hmm. And that is it. See you guys next time. All right, stopping. The show can be found on Twitter at PianoPlayerPod. Our email is still highlowpod at gmail.com. You can find a show on Spotify, Podbean, and various other places where you can find podcasts. Our intro music is by Vivian Fop, and our cover art is by Sarah Roberts. You can find her art, sarahkathleenroberts.com, and thank you for listening.